Hey everyone, this is Sean, and this is Humanoids, the podcast of the French LA-based publisher Humanoids. And today we have a phenomenal episode with none other than Ibrahim Mustafa. Ibrahim Mustafa is an illustrator and Eisner Award-nominated comic book writer and artist. He's the illustrator of High Crimes at Image Comics, Mother Panic at DC Comics, Savage Things at DC Comics, and James Bond Origin. But we are here to talk about Count, the new graphic novel from Ibrahim releasing this Tuesday with colors from Brad Simpson. This is a thrilling sci-fi reimagining of The Count of Monte Cristo, originally written by Alexander Dumas in 1844. It's the tale of a wrongfully imprisoned merchant who enacts vengeance on those who framed him. This tale receives an upgrade full of swashbuckling sword fights, labyrinth prison cities, hover pack rebellions, and so very much more. This is also the perfect bridge from literary legacy to blockbuster adrenaline. So if you're a teacher, librarian, or comic lover, it is absolutely worth the trip to dive into this new timeless classic of a classic. So me and Humanoids publisher Mark Wade sat down with Ibrahim to discuss this amazing new book. Enjoy. Ibrahim, how are you doing? Doing well, man. How are you doing? Uh, we are both in a snow globe of Portland, Oregon right now. So I, I think we're both staying cozy. Does that sound about right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, my dogs are getting a frolic in it and I'm inside and everyone's happy. <laughs> I mean, they're they're not outside right now in the snow without me, but, you know, <laughs> they've had a chance to play. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was thinking, I was rereading Count, your new graphic novel coming out in March, <laughs> sci-fi re-envisioning of the Count of Monte Cristo, and I was thinking of the diff, like it, it kind of had some similarities right now to being suspended on a prison colony because nobody in Portland goes outside when it snows. Yeah, well, and I mean, we're all also in this kind of microcosm of not going outside anyway when possible, right, due to the pandemic. So it's kind of like this extra layer of, you know, at least there's a fluffy white layer on top of our isolation right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's very visually pleasing, I will say that much. But yeah, let's talk about Count, man. This is an incredibly ambitious original graphic novel that also has that amazing classic swashbuckling feel from 19th century. So I, I kind of want to know your history with that type of classic literature first. When did you encounter it? What did it stimulate in you? And how did you kind of cultivate it into your work? Yeah, I, I mean, I grew up pretty well aware of the three musketeers and uh, i have two younger sisters and i remember they would watch a show called the wishbone where it was like a, a little jack russell terrier reenacting literary classics for kids and they did an episode on the count of monte cristo and that was the first time the story had ever crossed my path and then um i ended up renting the movie at a blockbuster video one day you know the 2002 uh jim caviezel guy pierce film and uh you know i was just totally enthralled by it and it, it had a lot of similarities to the mask of zorro which is another favorite of mine you know kind of that revenge tale uh you know seeking retribution after you know years in imprisonment and stuff so um that that had me go back and you know check out the the book i never made it all the way through initially because it's a very very long book and i was young so <laughs> um but then you know uh, i listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks while i work um you know a lot of long hours at the drawing table in solitude and so i was able to find an audio version of the count of monte cristo to to fully devour um and that 
you know, kept me entertained for hours and hours and hours while working. And then I started to think, you know, what if, what if this was like a more action packed, modernized revenge story? And that kind of got the, the ball rolling. Because I think a lot of people have the assumption that Dumas and those those classic works have tons of action in them, but they're a little bit more austere, right? They're a little bit more conservative. The original novel is, for lack of a better term, somewhat dry, even just in terms of, I think there's a sword drawn maybe at the very end of the 1100 some odd pages, whatever the length is. And there's a duel that almost happens with guns. <laughs> and I think that's about it. So... <laughs> You know, I really wanted to, I, I love action in, you know, storytelling. And I really wanted to infuse that into the story because I feel like it's so ripe for it, right? I mean, it's just, it's a story that begs for sword fights. And yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So and, I thought, let me do it. And it also, I mean, that's what comics does, man. I mean, this is, I th this Count of Monte Cristo is a prime example of, of what I keep talking about when I say write for the medium. You can't adapt it straight to comics because novels by nature are tend to be introspective works full of internal conflict right which doesn't translate well on the page so you've managed to pull out the heart of the story and then get to work making it a comic book yeah thank you i you know i i wanted to um be true to the sort of original framework which is you know wrongfully accused right. sent to prison escapes with an enormous treasure redefines himself and seeks revenge right but i think uh you know as you said in prose it, there's so much telling and not showing right yeah and you can do a very protracted slow methodical tale of of this guy dismantling his his transgressors one by one and that just doesn't work in in the medium of of comics like you said because one you know length is an issue not a lot of comics are going for more than eight to 12 issues nowadays anyway. So you'd be hard pressed to encompass all that in that length even. And, you know, with this, we had 120 pages and I think that's kind of a perfect length to get in and tell a meaty story. And so I, it was really just kind of boiling it down to the essential bits and then, you know, threading those through a different kind of version of this story that I wanted to tell. That's a little bit more focused on, some of the issues we see today with social justice and uh, you know, classism and stuff like that. No, it, it really does. What did you find any constraints in trying to go for 120 pages and, and figure out how to distill this thing down? Like what were the biggest challenges? Yeah, it was tough. There was a lot that I wanted to do. And I think that there were a lot of pieces that I had to kind of set in motion to, to make this version of it work. Um, you know, because aside from the stuff that was already in the classic version, I've added a bunch of things that right. weren't in it, you know, different characters, different themes, you know, different uh, like through lines and stuff. So um, trying to find a way to make all the work and come to a, you know, a nicely wrapped up conclusion was difficult at first. But I think once I had, uh, you know, a, a good bearing on what I wanted to do with it, I, it, it was kind of funny, actually, it ended up you know, I thought I was going to have to write 150 pages worth of script and then trim it down, but it ended up kind of working out just about perfectly. Great. When you were digging into it, like what were your stylistic influences? What were you looking at? What were you listening to? What was, what was driving the inspiration as you were working? A lot of it started with imagery that I am just 
fond of that I've wanted to draw, right? I love, I love vehicles that hover. I love islands that float. I just think that stuff looks so cool. And so I started to ask myself, how do you justify this imagery in a world building sense? So the approach that I took was I, I kind of looked at it like, okay, land masses float, then maybe it's some form of reverse polarity, right? The whatever kind of ore or you know earth metals are are within the the land formations in this world, you know they're polarized, and so that reverse polarity dictates how far or close they hover to the actual mass itself. And then from there, I thought, okay, well, if that's the case, then this society probably didn't have a, uh, an industrial revolution that was based on any form of combustion in- engine because the magnetic properties can take that place. So then I asked myself, what would a society that didn't have to focus on explosions, you know, harnessing <laughs> explosions, right. what would that look like? And so I think a lot of our designs in our world are born out of necessity, right? A motorcycle looks like a horse and a, a car was a wagon that was, you know, used to be horse drawn. And then, you know, so I kind of extrapolated on that sort of logic and put it into this world. Um, and within that also, um, there's sort of a, a, a thing about light in this world, you know, the, I don't really get into like religious subtext in it so much, but if there is kind of a faith based thing, it's based around light. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I've always been fascinated with the idea that, you know, we look at like the ancient Egyptians who, who had a sun God and, you know, somewhat worshiped the sun and we go, look how primitive it's like, well, that thing, you can see it and you can feel it every day, you know? So yeah. <laughs> I kind of thought, what if this world, uh, you know, had a reverence for light. And so, you know, it's, it's in their sort of little lapel insignias that are there that kind of signify what class they're part of. And, and, you know, the, the, their glowing elements within the, the rock formations themselves and the, the things that, they have harnessed a polarity with. So um, yeah, that was kind of what really kicked it all off for me was, was that sort of logic building. By the way, I don't know if you looked at science headlines this morning, but I saw one that apparently scientists in the laboratory have found a way to levitate something using only light. And I cannot wait to get oh, wow. back to that article and find out what's going on there. So yeah, you send me a link to that, please. I would yeah, love yeah. to check that out. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they got a preview copy of count. <laughs> yeah you know it's, yeah. it's been very influential in science circles so far <laughs> uh, well i got another question for you about process so mm-hmm. w- since you were writing and drawing and doing all the work what what was the like what was the illustrator in you saying to the artist to the to the to the writer as the writer was writing and like what was the what was the writer saying to the illustrator as you were sitting down doing the the actual heavy lifting of drawing that is a good question a lot of it was remember what you were going to do here when you wrote this in three months, when you actually get to this page, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, cause I would have ideas for stuff and I would think, Oh, you know, this is how I want this to play out. And luckily I was able to retain a lot of that one. You know, I think the reading it again, sort of jogged my memory. And, you know, of course, sometimes you get to that part and it doesn't work the way you thought it was going to visually. So you have to rethink it. But uh, yeah, you know, part of it for me, being able to write and draw my own work I use this analogy a lot, but it feels like getting to dress yourself in your own clothes. Whereas yeah. sometimes working with a writing collaborator feels like they're picking out your outfits for you. You know, that's stuff from your closet, but it does not, you wouldn't wear that combination to put your best foot forward, right? You wouldn't yeah, yeah. wear that to a job interview or something. So 
it, it was nice because I was able to to plant seeds for myself that later I would get to visit visually and just have a lot of fun with. Did you find yourself tweaking stuff as you drew from the script? Yes. Uh, not, not, not a huge amount, but it, it certainly happened. Um, a lot of times I would find that I could trim things down because I didn't, you know, need two or three panels to get across right. what I could get with just a single, you know, uh, facial expression or something. Right. And then other times I would have to decompress something because I actually needed more space. So, uh, and that's one of the, the real benefits to being able to write and draw myself is, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about stepping on anyone's toes if I find that I need to make changes like that. This is why I always defer to artists because as a writer, you know, I, I know that at best it took me maybe an hour to write that page. If, and that's at the outside, you're going to stare at it for eight or nine hours. So right. you're going to see stuff in there that I didn't see. So you're going to think about it. You're thinking about that one page for nine times longer than I did. So you're going to find stuff, you're going to see stuff, you're going to, you're going to figure out better ways of doing stuff. So that's, you know, that to me is the value of having a good writer artist relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, you're, you're thinking completely differently when you're trying to, to visualize it and actually put it on paper. Right. I mean, you're, you're having to visualize environments in three dimension and, and, you know, you're taking speaking order for characters and, and trying to figure out where they go in the panel and how do you leave enough room for the important visual elements and the word balloons. And so, at, you know, at the very least, I have no one to blame but myself when I screw that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's another thing that's great about the way you're doing it is that, and this is also something I drill into younger artists and try to get, and, and I figure about one out of every five listens to me, which is the balloons sound effects that's those are those are graphic elements on the page the same as the desk and the chair and the guy and the gun yeah. you know and so there in in so many comics the the copy is just as as if it were just an add-on as if we just kind of slapped it on after the story were, were already completely conceived and you got then all these balloons and captions and elements of copy just floating around trying trying not to get in the way of the drawing but you incorporate you use that at, you know, to help design your page. Yeah. And that's another benefit of, you know, being the writer as well, because right. sometimes, you know, when you're working in the assembly line of, of comics, you know, maybe you don't have that script page fully, you know, it's maybe it's not finished yet or, yeah. or it's going to change after you've drawn it. You know, I've had pages where um, dialogue was taken out because the, the images sold it. And I've had pages where, you know, dialogue was added after because it felt necessary. So you know, you have a better sense of what kind of real estate you're working with when you're doing it in an all-in-one approach. Yeah. What were you looking at like growing up? What, what, whose work were you looking at that made an imprint on you? Uh, well, this is where I have to tip my hat to you a bit because oh, uh, <laughs> Alex Ross's work was the thing that got me into comics. You know, I read them as a little kid. My, my very first comic was John Byrne's Man of Steel number two. Right. Um, and so, you know, that was just what comics looked like to me. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I sort of fell out of comics and superhero stuff as I, you know, got older and went through school, I got into breakdancing and other stuff. And then eventually when Smallville hit the air, I came back around because I was like, oh, I've always loved Superman, you know, and now there's a new show about it. And somebody got me a gift that was like a book that had, you know, the complete history of Superman. And, mm -hmm. and there was an Alex Ross painting you know, underneath the dust jacket. 
Yeah. And that led me down a rabbit hole. And then of course I found kingdom come. And then from there I said, well, this Mark Wade guy is pretty good. <laughs> so I checked out birthright. And so, you know, al- artists like Alex Ross, Laniel, you, um, Olivia Coipel is one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so many people over the years, Zafino, um, Jorge Zafino, um, yeah, yeah. just, you know, I, I pretty much just try to consume it all. And then, um, you know, put it through my blender and then hope that I don't screw it up when it comes out. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you, you do, not only are you really great at what you do, but especially for us, you're good because as humanoids, even though we're publishing this in the U S even though this is, uh, it will be translated, but it, it originated here in the U S with, you know, as an English language book, uh, we, when it comes to the art and art styles, we have to be a little more, we have to come at it from a slightly different direction than Marvel and DC and, and dark horse or whatever, because we need, we need the art to be able to easily sort of translate to, to the French language. And the, one of the things I've learned here early on, and it's still the, the lesson that is hardest to grasp. And really at the, at the end of the day, only Fabrice Geiger can really make the decision is what, you know, will this play in Paris? Basically, mm-hmm. you know, your editor, Rob and, you know, and I, and we all look at all the artwork that comes in from different people and go, I love this, but it might not play overseas. Mm-hmm. In which case it doesn't, it, you know, if it's, if it's brilliant, we'll do it. But in a perfect world, we want this stuff translated everywhere because it's just better for everybody. Um, and you, you know, you clearly have balanced your European influences and whatever American influences you got. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of European comics. Um, and I think as an artist, you know, there, we have what we call artist artists, right? The people we all kind of look up to. And I think a lot of those people come from the European yeah. uh, comic scene. So um, and I, you know, just from a storytelling standpoint, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, the page format of European comics. I think that the, uh, the, the layouts and the coloring styles, you know, um, generally there are more panels per page. I feel like in, in European stuff, it's less about bombast and, you know, the big sort of superhero, you know, one guy punching another kind of mm-hmm. panels. And, and the, the, the smaller moment to moment stuff and the character acting and whatnot, like that's always really resonated a lot with me. And I think you see that more on display in European stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've have certainly, you know, infused a lot of that influence into my work. So I'm glad, I'm glad it worked. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does. What, how familiar were you, were you to, with the humanoids catalog in general before you came to us? I was pretty familiar, honestly. Um, I, you know, Travis Charest is another yeah. huge influence on on my stuff and just other artists in general, I think. And, um, you know, so I first discovered Humanoids through his Metabarons work. Um, and then, you know, those visuals are so cool, regardless of who's drawing them, right? Like, the, such, a, such a unique character design with the eyebrows and the, the shaved head. And, and so that, um, and, and I mean, really, you know, humanoids is, has such a high bar for sci-fi and such unique world building that, uh, you know, that's kind of where you look when you're into that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, for me, I was, I was very, very much aware. And of course, you know, Mobius being such a, sure. a you know, a huge branch on the art influence tree for everybody. Right. Um, so yeah, I was, I was pretty elated when I got the opportunity to, to 
pitch count to humanoids. And I honestly wasn't sure which way it would go because I was essentially saying, hey, here's a French sci-fi thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who knows? You, know? right. you came to the right place. I mean, also, as, a, as an editor, I am, and as a writer, I'm always a fan of mashups, basically. I'm a fan of, like, the movie O, you know, the basketball movie that basically adapts Othello or... Mm -hmm you know, Brick, which is that great Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie where it's, yeah. you know, hardcore PI stuff in a high school. And so I, I, that'll always get my attention. You know, this story by way of this, this classic story by way of this. And so that immediately, you know, I was sold immediately. And I knew your work and I really, I really knew you could pull it off. But boy, you take this the right way. You really surprised me with how much you, you know, how hard you really came to the table with this. You left it all in the field. It's really good. Oh, thank you, Mark. I, man, that means a lot. Yeah. I, I'm a fan of that stuff too. You know, and I think, I think people are in general, I think the, the most successful stuff we see out of like Marvel and DC lately is, you know, stuff like deceased or, yeah. you know, the old man Logan type of stuff where you take this thing we all know, and you put it in a new context. Yep. It's not mired by continuity. It just gets to be its own thing. And it's a it's a twist on the thing we all know and love. And I think people really respond to that. Yeah. You know, and so that was very much a, a thing I wanted to try to do with count. Cool. I I you hit it out of the park. Sean, any any other I last can't, observations? I can't follow that, Mark. I can't follow that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, then Abraham, thanks so much for coming aboard and thanks not just with the book but coming here to the podcast where can people find you online uh i'm on instagram at ibrahim underscore m underscore art i believe a lot of ibrahims out there so i have to you know sure. <laughs> switch it up um it, it, you can go to countcomic.com and um it's got you know links to my social media the humanoids website there's a trailer for the book you can watch uh you can pre-order it there um, yeah, that's probably the best sort of central hub, I think. Yep. Listen, Ibrahim, like there's one more thing you've not mentioned, which is there's a video of you doing the robot in service right. account. And I think that's <laughs> what we all really want to see. Yeah, I mean that's uh that's on Twitter and Instagram, I think actually. So yeah, if you if you look it up, you can see me dancing like a jerk on the internet doing a the robot. <laughs> there you go. It's professional. <laughs> like I was shocked when I saw it. I, I think you're saying you're acting like a jerk. But I was like, he's not he's a triple threat of being a writer, an artist, and a dancer, which is what everyone associates as a triple threat. Oh well thank you. I you know, I was very fortunate in my younger years to have met an old school hip hop guy from New York. Uh, at a boys and girls club thing that I used to go to. And he became my real life Mr. Miyagi and taught me, you know, how to do the robot standing on a, the bow of a boat. And uh... <laughs> yeah, it didn't, your, your, your casual drop of break dancing and talking about your history was not lost on me. No, no, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah that was my, that was my thing before comics. I, I mean, I, I did it, you know, I taught workshops and classes and I, and I, you know, did performances and, and competitions and stuff. And, you know, it's it was a ton of fun, and I, I love that world and that community. It's it's something that is difficult to to do full time, and as you get older, you know, yeah. Um, and it, and with comics, I mean, you, it's like that's an a bag a basket you have to put all your eggs in. You know, yeah. you can't really sort of do it half time. So I had to make a decision which one was going to be the the one that I focused on the most. And comics won for better or worse. I think you chose. <laughs> I think you chose wisely. All right, so count on sale 
the week of March 17th everywhere. I encourage everyone to go out there and find it. Uh, ask your retailer if they've ordered it and make sure they have ordered it. Uh, or, you know, pick it up on Amazon, pick it up at a, your local bookseller, preferably your local bookseller, because we all want them to succeed. Yeah. Uh, and there you go. Thanks so much again for coming by. Hey, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey everybody, thank you so very much for listening to the latest episode of Humanoids. That was Ibrahim Mustafa. He is the writer and artist of Count, out next week on March 16th. Thanks again, everybody.